0: The importance of a proper foundation to any construction project is probably nowhere more evident to us uh, than in the Tower of Pisa, or as you know it, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That tower in the little town of Italy, uh, which has been leaning some between three and five degrees uh, for the last several hundred years. Uh, The word Pisa, the name of the town itself, means uh, marshy ground, and so that you would think for the architects would have been some indication of the importance of laying a sure foundation, but... Uh, tower of Pisa being constructed in the 1600s or so has been leaning that entire time. It actually began leaning during construction as it sunk into the marshy ground below it, and uh, you can even see where the where the tower to uh, to be uh, straightened uh, d- uh, perfectly straight at 90 degrees from the base of it. You would see that it itself would actually kind of curve the other way because even as they were constructing it it started to started to lilt it started to sink and so the the, the contractors or whoever it was that were putting this thing together tried to straighten it out as they built it like oh, that's kind of that's a little wonky so we'll just start building it straight from here uh, the tower of pisa stands as uh, kind of the perfect picture of the importance of laying a sure foundation for any project as we come to Ezra chapter 3, we will see the people of God returning from exile in Babylon begin to build the foundation of the temple again in Jerusalem. And the rebuilding of the foundation is really kind of just a picture for God rebuilding the foundation of His people. We have said that throughout Ezra that, that this uh, a bit of history Uh, of the people of Israel is less about rebuilding a house of worship and more about God rebuilding his people. We find in Ezra 3 that God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, his personal name, rebuilds his people around worship or on the foundation of worship. The first task of the resettled exiles as they return to Jerusalem is to rebuild the right worship of God. And that right worship happens in in the building that God has uh, given direction to be built. And so as they rebuild the temple foundation, however, the joy of God's success, uh, His success in bringing about the rebuilding of the foundation uh, of His house, Uh, will be intermixed with sorrow and disappointment. We'll see that here in a minute. Ezra 3 ends in sort of a bittersweet way. But here's the point that I want uh, us to gain from Ezra chapter 3 this morning, and it is this, that God builds and rebuilds His people around right worship and dependence upon Him. God builds and rebuilds His people around right worship and dependence upon Him. As we encounter this truth in this text, I hope that we would rejoice in worship for what God has done for us in the bittersweet cross of Jesus Christ, that we would worship exultantly, worship God for our redemption and humbly repent of those sins that made his death necessary. God builds his people in the Old Testament in the New Testament and the church today all alike around worship of him. And that worship does not happen, does not come rightly apart from, uh, uh, does not happen uh, outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look together at the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple and the foundation of God's people in Ezra chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? The historian of... The events of the life of Jeru- uh, uh, Israel continues here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to, bur- to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at, the, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers." And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of God was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. God, may you bless your people as we come to your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Be seated. As we uh, come to Ezra three this week, and as I was studying and preparing for this sermon this morning throughout the week that had just passed, uh, I found myself a little bit overwhelmed with the many wonderful parallels that there are to other events in biblical history in Ezra chapter three there 's parallel between the Feast of the booths a uh, feast of booths that the the returning exiles celebrate in in chapter 3 and and between the exodus from Egypt there are multiple parallels between the way that Solomon built the first temple and the steps that are involved in rebuilding the foundation of this one There's the recurring theme of uh, altar building and giving thanks to God for his provision uh, that that goes all the way back to the altar that Abram builds uh, to God in Genesis 12 when God promises to make him the father of many nations. There's the song that the Israelites sing in worship that is sung by David uh, when the ark of God is brought into Jerusalem when David was king in 1 Chronicles 16. The same song that was sung when Solomon dedicated the first temple in 2 Chronicles 5. It's a song that is sung in remembrance of God's historic provision that we read in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord our God and King, His love endures forever. There are so many threads to pull on and themes to trace uh, throughout all of Scripture that that kind of come to a head here in Ezra chapter 3. And of all of them that we could explore, I want to look at this one that I think is the most important, which is that God rebuilds His people around worship. We could say that differently. God's people will be a worshiping people. We find, illustrated in this text, Ezra 3, and all of Scripture, that God's people are meant for worship, God's people are designed for worship. And this is not something that should surprise us or, or, or take us uh, suddenly. This is not something we should be confused by because it is a, a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture. God's people are meant for worship from creation to consummation from the first of uh, scripture to the last of it. And I want to take a brief, emphasis on brief survey of the Bible to see how God's people are meant, are designed for worship. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. When God completes his work of creation and he takes the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and as Genesis 2:15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, the Hebrew word for that word work is the Hebrew word abad, which is used in other places of the Old Testament to mean worship. And the word, the Hebrew word for that word keep to tend the garden is the Hebrew word shamar, which means in other places, obey. God literally puts Adam in the garden to worship and obey. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, God calls his people, or calls to Pharaoh to let his people go. He says to Pharaoh in Exodus 7 let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me in the wilderness. As God brings his people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he says to them in Exodus 194 4-6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God says to Moses. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, we have the Ten Commandments and the very first two of them relate to worship to God. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the only one that you shall worship, that you shall serve. The second of the commandments is that the people of Israel shall have no idols, no no fashioned uh, uh, figures of what God looks like or of other gods that they would worship or serve. God says, only me. You are made only to worship me. When the people of Israel uh, begin to conquer Canaan under the leadership of that great leader Joshua, Joshua says to them in Joshua 24:15, "If it is evil in the sight of your eyes to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whom you'll worship, whether the gods of your fathers." Uh, Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in uh, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve, we will worship Yahweh, the Lord. In Psalm 95, we hear this call to worship to the people of Israel. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. But listen, worship of the only true God is not something that God has only designed Israel for. It's what He's designed everyone for, the families of the earth, every nation. Psalm 96, 7 and 8 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Jesus comes, God in flesh, to lead a people in worship to God, to lead a people in true and spiritual worship to God the Father. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth of the church, those who have come to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? That's exactly what God said of Israel in Exodus, now applied to the church. You are this people who are made to worship God, Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are made to proclaim the excellencies of God, but it gets better. We started in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and now I'll take us all the way to the end to Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5 where here we read this picture of how the saints, how those who are by faith in Jesus, saved from their sin, will live forever in eternity with God. John writes this in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or uh, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Yeah, so what we see in Ezra 3, the rebuilding of the foundation, the temple of God in Jerusalem, is really God rebuilding His people around the very thing for which they have been created: yeah. worship. They rebuild the altar so that they might offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to God for his provision. And they sing praises of thanksgiving to God for how his steadfast love has endured toward his people, even through the discipline of their exile in Babylon. God's people are meant for worship from creation to consummation. Dear friend this morning, enter joyfully into God's purpose for your life. Make your life about the thing God has made you for. Make your life about worshiping the God who created you. This is your purpose. This is your meaning. You will find no greater fulfillment than in doing that for which God has made you psychologytoday.com posted an article recently about five, five steps, five things you can do, five, answer, five questions you can answer in your life in order to find purpose for life. They say psychology today says these things. Number one, find out what drives you. Number two, find out what energizes you. Number three, find out what you are willing to sacrifice for. Number four, find out who you want to help, who you want to serve. Number five, find out how you, how you want to serve. Psychology Today says, answer these five questions and you can live with purpose. Well, dear friend, the Bible has already given to us both the questions and the answers to finding purpose in life. What ought to drive us? What are we made to to drive us, to motivate us in all that we do? God, our creator. He is to be the one who is our very motive and the the, the thing that drives, the the agent that drives our, our very action in the world. What energizes us? It ought to be bringing glory glory to God in all that we do. That ought to excite us. That ought to be the kind of thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. It's the kind of thing that gets us through the mundane tasks of our day-to-day jobs. Paul says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. This is what you're made for. Psychology today says, find out what you're willing to sacrifice for. The Bible says, sacrifice your life for this. Give your life for this. For the renown of God in this world. Give your life in service to the king of all creation who has given you a means by which to be saved from your sin and in a right relationship with him. Make your life about public worship that leads other people to worship publicly. publicly. That is worth sacrificing your life for. Psychology Today says find out who you want to help or serve. Scripture says you are made to serve God, to worship him and to love others as he would have us to do. Psychology today says find out how you want to serve if you want to find purpose in life. But Scripture gives us this answer. We serve this way with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We serve God this way. With everything that we, that we feel, with every desire of our heart, every inclination of our being, every disposition uh, of, of who we are, being inclined, being uh, oriented toward God and toward pleasing Him, loving Him with all of our soul. That is with just every part of our existence, to love God, to serve Him with all of our mind. That means with every thought that we have and everything that we put mental energy toward. This is how we are made to serve. We are to serve with all of our strength. Again, Paul whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, do it all to the glory of God, the little things and the big things, all of it in service to God. God's people are meant for worship from creation to consummation. Dear friend, this is God's purpose, not just for the people of Israel returning to Jerusalem in Ezra 3, but this is God's purpose for you. This is what he has made you for. He has made you that your life might just overflow and bubble over in praise to him in all things. And there's no greater purpose for which to live your life than this. And this is the purpose that God is leading his people in Ezra 3 to to understand again, to re-embrace anew as they come back, as he rebuilds them as his people. God's people are meant for worship. Not just from creation to consummation, but also in every season of life in between. We are made for worship in every season of life. In Ezra 3, we see God's people doing what He's called them to do and what He has made them for. They worship. That should be obvious by now. But we do well to notice when and how they worship. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3 of Ezra 3 says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and burnt offerings morning and evening. The people of Israel understand that worship is the right response to fear, to seasons of fear and danger in life. Worship is what we are made for. Even in those seasons, even in those times in life, chapters of our life where our our very lives may be threatened, worship is the right response. But look also at verses 10 and 11 to see how the people respond and worship to God in not a season of, of great terror or of fear, but a season of great joy as several months after they return to the uh, land of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem, the foundation of the temple is there laid. They come together in verse uh, uh, 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Dear friend, do you have reason to be joyful? Do you have reason to smile today because of who God is and how he has provided for you? Well then, friend, you, like these Israelites, have reason to worship God whose steadfast love endures forever toward his people. People of Israel worship in every season of life, in times of fear and in times of great joy. But let us not forget all that happens in the middle, because not all of life is mountaintops or valleys low. Most of life is lived somewhere on the incline or the decline, somewhere in between. Verses 4-6 through of Ezra chapter 3 give us in summary form all that the the returnees from exile begin to do, how they worship. They worship not only in times of fear. They they do not worship only in times of joy, but they worship all year long, habitually. Ezra 3 starts this way. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The seventh month of the Jewish calendar is called Tishri. And it occurs during September or October of our Western calendar. It was the most holy month in all of Israel's year. The first day of Tishri was the beginning of a new uh, agricultural calendar year for them. The tenth day of the month of Tishri was the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, a day in which the high priest would uh, make a sacrifice for the sins of the people and offer it on the, offer the, the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the most holy place of the temple. Now the Day of Atonement is not practiced here in Ezra chapter 3 because there's no temple yet, much less a Holy of Holies in which to offer the sacrifice of atonement. But still, it's the seventh month. It's the most holy month. It's a month where all this worship happens. We do find in verses 4 through 6 that beginning on the 15th of the month of Tishri, the seventh month, was the Feast of Booths. And this feast would last from the 15th to the 21st of the month. Now, the Feast of Booths, or in other places, or maybe some of your translations of the Bible, the Feast of Tabernacles, was instituted by God in Numbers chapter 29. And it was a feast, it was a festival that was meant to remind the people of God of when God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. But for their stubbornness and disobedience, they were made to wander in tents in the wilderness for 40 years. So for seven days in the month of of Tishri, the people of Israel would live in tents outside their houses. To remind themselves of the 40 years that they had wandered in, wilderness, wandered in the wilderness uh, uh, as, as part of God's discipline for their stubbornness. Now Ezra does not say so explicitly, but we are meant to understand that the people of God returned to Jerusalem as one man, as verse 1 says, as a people who will enter again into the habitual and liturgical worship of God. Now, that word liturgical probably carries with it some baggage for some people. I hope that uh, that we can get over that today. Liturgy just means kind of an, an order of service, an order of, of worshiping together. Um, Baptists, love it or hate it, hate it, we have a liturgy, Okay. uh uh, over time especially i don't know beginning in probably the 1950s or 60s and continuing certainly through the 90s the baptist liturgy looks like this call to worship three songs offering one more song sermon song of response somebody prays we all go home (laughs) love it or leave it that's our liturgy okay It's not as formal as that, but we have it. But this is the same sort of habit, the same sort of pattern, uh, or at least a similar sort, that the people of Israel are returning to. They know that it is good to worship God habitually, uh, liturgically, regularly, even in a scheduled way, because God has made us for worship. And He has made us to have our souls most satisfied when we worship Him. And we are made to worship Him not only on, uh, in the shadow of death or on the mountaintop, but in every mundane season of life. We are made to worship God in, in all that we do and in every chapter, every season of our living, in every event of our lives. The Israelites who had worshipped God wrongly and idolatrously had been taken captive by the Babylonians several decades before. And as punishment for it, Uh, they had been made to live in a land not their own. Now, returning to Jerusalem is a people that God would rebuild around the right spiritual and regular worship of Him, the people of Israel come together to be built this way. God's people are meant for worship. We're meant for worship in every season of life. Friend, today I pray, I hope that you would delight your soul finding purpose in your life, By engaging in rhythms and habits of worship. Delight your soul by engaging in the habitual, even dare I say, liturgical, habits of worship that lead us to God's throne. It is lamentable that we live in an era in which we have been taught that the significance of events can be measured by our emotional response to them. That is to say, things only matter, things, events are only significant in my life to the degree to which I have some sort of emotional response to it. I laughed a lot or I cried a lot. It was really meaningful. This is a signature pillar of the postmodern worldview, that feelings, emotions, e- sincere affective response determines the significance and even the truth of a thing. Right, uh, the, world, the postmodern worldview wants to teach us that the only things that are true are the things that you feel deeply in your heart. And if you don't feel it deeply, it's not true, at least not for you. The terrifying and hidden reality of this kind of worldview is that if you don't feel good about an idea, if you don't feel good about an experience, then that it must not be true. But worship is not something that God's people do only when they feel like it. Or only when the songs that we sing are our favorites. Or only when the volume is just so. worship is what we do day in and day out. Whether we feel like it or not. Because we know in the long term, in the long run, we will not find purpose. We will not find fulfillment in doing only what we feel good about doing in the moment but rather in doing what we know is good and what we know is right and that for which we have been designed day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Amen. The great uh, NBA scorer, Ray Allen, who I think to this day still leads uh, the, the league. He's, he's, he's been retired, but still leads the league. He holds the record for most three-pointers scored in a career. Ray Allen, the great shooter. After he retired from the NBA, he wrote a letter to his 13-year-old self. It's a long letter. I won't read all of it. I'll just refer to one part of it today. It's a good, le- uh, good letter. I think it's, it's helpful for many of us to read as he looks back on his life. And if he could say to his 13-year-old self, do these things. If you want to be successful in this game, think this way, hang out with these people. It's the kind of wisdom that a 41-year-old NBA retiree would say to a 13-year-old up-and-comer. And he says in his letter to his 13-year-old self, you know what makes the difference between NBA champions and the rest of everybody else? Three words, boring old habits. Going every day through practice, not finishing until you've shot 100 free throws. Going every week, having shot 1,000 three-pointers from different places on the court with no one guarding you, just going through the motions. Practicing defense, running drills, layups, boring old habits were what made Ray Allen the greatest three-point scorer of all time to date. Dear friend, worship and the life of worship, the rhythm of worship is to be for the Christian what boring old habits were for Ray Allen. We're not meant to only worship when we feel like it. We're not meant to only worship when it seems like a a good time. We're not meant to only worship in the good times of life or the bad times of life. We are meant to worship all the time. We're not meant to to worship with the church gathered together uh, uh, only on the Sundays where we don't have anything else going on. We're not meant to gather together as families to pray together and seek God's help and worship together as as family units or in discipling groups only when we feel like it, but all the time, maybe especially when we don't feel like it. Imagine if Ray Allen hadn't practiced those boring old habits on days where he just didn't feel like practicing. Would he have been the great scorer that he was? Certainly not. Dear friends, if we are to enter into the purpose for which God has made us, which is to worship Him, to glorify Him, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as He has designed us to do, we must do it rhythmically, habitually, liturgically, even when we don't feel like it. We must learn to delight our soul by engaging in these rhythms and habits of worship. Now Ray Allen may have seen shooting 100 free throws before he went home every day, shooting a thousand three-pointers a week before uh before he could call it a good week of worship. He or a good week of practice. He may have called those things boring old habits, but for us, the the rhythm, the habit, the liturgy of worship are not boring old habits. These are life-giving habits. Yeah. So, dear friend, let us enter into the rhythm of worship, even when we don't feel like it, knowing that God gives us purpose and meaning and fulfillment to the deepest level of our souls as we come and do that together and on our own regularly, habitually, liturgically. God's people are meant for worship from creation to consummation. They're meant for worship in every season of life, and they are meant finally for worship, uh, to worship in, in truth to worship God truly, to worship Him rightly. Ezra 3 ends strangely, doesn't it? Look again with me at the second half of verse 11 to the end. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It's a good day. It's a day of rejoicing. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. We would like to think that the rebuilding of the temple foundation is a good thing, uh, an event that is cause for celebration, and it certainly seems so in verse 11. As all the men are there gathered around, those who had put their hand to the work to see this foundation laid, they're all shouting victoriously in worship. It's a good thing. But if this event is so good, why are all the old men, why are all the old men among the returning exiles, why are they mourning? Why are they crying? Why are they weeping with a loud voice? What seems to be happening is this that there were among those who returned from exile some who had gone into exile as young men. Young men who had seen and worshipped in the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. But now they see just by the foundation of the new temple that this one is not even going to come close to the glory and the opulence of the, one of, uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world in Solomon's temple. As they start weeping. This temple is going to be smaller. The, the, the stones aren't as big as the first one. It's just different. It's not the same. Haggai... Was a prophet of God who prophesied in the days of the rebuilding of this temple. And he says in Haggai 2 3, or God says through Haggai in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, all these old men who are weeping, right? How do you see it now? asks the Lord through Haggai. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, these old men were saddened because the reality of the new temple fell far short of their expectations. The temple of the Lord was building through uh, his people. The, the temple of the Lord, his building through, uh, that he's building through his people, is far less pretty on the outside than the temple that Solomon had built for the Lord. And there's the rub in these, uh, that these old men face within themselves, isn't it? It's not what we expected. It's not what we wanted. is isn't as good as the first time. But we're faced, and I think forced, through the encouragement of the prophet Haggai to ask the question, what is better? An opulent house of worship built for God by the planning and efforts of the mighty king of an economic powerhouse? Or a humble temple erected in the power of God through a weak but willing people who only want to worship Him again? Yeah, amen. Which is better? Which is more glorious in the real sense? A temple built by human ingenuity and human effort that reaches to the heavens is covered with gold? Or a temple that God builds through a weak and willing people who just want to worship Him? God speaks through Haggai again in that same prophecy, Haggai chapter 2, saying this, My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It may not be glorious on the outside. It may not be glorious because of the, the, uh, the lack of opulence that the people of Israel are able to give to it, but God says, I will fill this house with With glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Right worship, true worship, sincere worship, worship properly carried out as the defining mark of God's people has godly expectations, has God for its focus. Those who shouted in victory that day that the foundation was laid, I'm glad to say, had the right sort of perspective on what God was doing. We, We should read Ezra 3 and be excited with those who shouted for joy. But those who wept expected something else. Rather than looking with joy to the future that lay ahead for the people among whom God is pleased to glorify himself, they instead looked back to the past and wept because their expectations for glory were unmet. Is this it? This is what we went into exile for? This rinky-dink pile of rocks? It's terrible. These old men seem to be forgetting that the God whose temple they are rebuilding is the very God who was pleased to be worshipped in a wool and leather tabernacle, stiffened and stinking of the dried blood of sin sacrifices and to let his glory rest there. Certainly those who wept that day would have been just as disillusioned at the sight of Jesus, the Christ, the one who is the very word of God, who took on flesh and tabernacled among us, full of glory and truth, hanging bloody on a cross as the final and perfect sacrifice for sins. To their human eyes, there was no glory in this new temple. To our human eyes, there is no glory in the cross of Christ. But seen through the eyes of truth, seen through the perspective that God's Spirit gives to us, this humble temple built by God through His people in Ezra 3 is glorious not because it's got great large stones making up its foundation. It is not glorious because it's covered in gold, which it won't be. It is not glorious because of the kind of materials that it is made with. It is glorious because God is the builder. Yeah. And the cross is glorious to us because it is the place where the Son of God died to atone for all our sins and to make us right with God. This bittersweet picture of the Son of God being crucified for sins that He did not commit is bitter because a righteous man is dying. But it is sweet because it fulfills all of our expectations, all of our hopes for salvation, far and above anything that we could have expected. It is sweet because it is there that as Christ hung, He made atonement for our sins to bring us right with God. It is bitter because our sins put Him there, and it is sweet because it is by His presence on the cross and His death there that we are saved. We as God's people are meant for worship and to worship Him in truth, and we worship God humbly, or we worship God truly, excuse me, by coming to Him humbly through Jesus. There is no worship of the Father except through Christ the Son. There is no coming to God except through the cross of Jesus Christ where your sins were paid for. That is how God wants us to worship Him truly, in the bitter sweetness of the cross of Jesus, the bitterness of His death, the sweetness of His resurrection. Dear Christian, you are made for worship. Friend, you who do not know Christ yet today. You who would not call yourself a Christian know this. You are made for worship. And you'll either worship God or you'll worship something else of your your own imagination or your own uh, prerogative. We'll worship something. We'll give our lives and praise and adoration to something. But we are meant to give it to God. And we give our worship to God only truly by coming to Him through Jesus. And not through what we expect God should be like. Not through our own ideas of of how God should be worshipped, but by the way that God says, worship me, come to me, embrace my son, died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Worship me truly this way. Our worship should be founded on nothing less than the solid rock that is Jesus. The old hymn goes this way, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. And when He shall come, when He returns, when Christ comes again to call His church, when He shall come with trumpet sound, with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand; all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friend, is your life founded upon the right, true, habitual? beginning to end worship of God. That's what you have been made for. It is what God is doing in Ezra 3, rebuilding his people around right worship of him, habitual, regular, devoted worship to him, worship in truth. Dear friend, is your life resting on the same solid rock that is Jesus and worship of God through him? May it be so. God, build your church as a people who worship you. Because of Christ, your son, who brings us into relationship with you. Dear friend, you may have that relationship with God. You may step into this, this life of worship of your creator simply by turning from sin and self to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, believing he is God's son, believing he is God in flesh who was raised from the dead that you might be made right with God. Give your life to him as Lord. Follow him obediently every day. Walk in the worship that God has meant you for. Let us pray.